Simple is to do what you've always done. Beginning anew is complicated, but can lead to incredible opportunities. On this episode, Michael Bungay-Stanier returns to show us how to make progress when starting something new. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 562. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. One of the calls that we all have as leaders, not only in our organizations, but of course in our own careers, is to start anew, to begin. And then once we begin to be able to get traction, today's guest, an expert at helping folks to change behavior and to really take action on the things that are most important in really practical ways. I'm so glad to welcome back to the show, Michael Bungay-Stanier. Michael distills big, complex ideas into practical, accessible knowledge for everyday people so they can be a force for change. His books have sold over a million copies, and The Coaching Habit was a Wall Street Journal bestseller. He's been featured on the blogs and social media platforms of thought leaders, including Seth Godin, Tim Ferriss, and Brené Brown, and has been featured in many publications, including Harvard Business Review, Forbes, and Fast Company. His TEDx talk on Taming Your Advice Monster has been viewed more than a million times. Michael is the founder of Box of Crayons, a learning and development company that helps organizations transform from advice-driven to curiosity-led action. His new book is titled How to Begin, Start Doing Something That Matters. Michael, I noticed in your official bio that there has been an addition to the contribution you made to the world on Pizza Hut's stuffed crust pizza at some point right. in your career. And I feel like you have received the accolades you are due for the work you've done on coaching in the world. But on the <laughs> pizza contribution, I feel like the world has not really acknowledged you. And so let me be the first to say thank you for all you have done for pizza eaters everywhere. <laughs> oh, look, that is utterly my my pleasure. It was a very small role. And um, I remember some years later, I had a new job, a new company, and my boss, and I was still pretty young, so my boss was trying to big me up in front of this McKinsey partner. <laughs> going, Michael's amazing. He played a small role in stuffed crust pizza. Why he <laughs> thought that would impress anybody, I don't know. And and the partner just looked at him and he went, yeah, I worked with the people dealing with the lawsuit from the machine that made the stuffed crust and cut people's fingers off. Oh, I was no. like, oh, I had, I wasn't, I was not involved with the machine bit. <laughs> oh so, my goodness. Yeah, it was, it was an awkward moment. Well, speaking of not awkward moments, this is your fifth time on the show. And every other time that you've been on, we've been talking about becoming more coach-like and coaching right. skills or something else closely related. And this book is a different focus. What prompted a bit of new direction from you? Well, a, a couple of things. The kind of the, the foundational change is that two years ago, or a bit longer now, I stepped away from being the CEO at Box of Crayons, this uh, coaching company that I founded, and handed that over to the brilliant Shannon Minifee, who is now the CEO. And it wasn't simply a matter of just stepping away from the day-to-day -day running of the business, because it became clear to me that I wasn't that great a CEO. I mean, I didn't. I don't think I sucked at it, but I don't think I was particularly great at it. But Founder-led transitions, Dave, tend to fail <laughs> because founders are like me, you know, divas, 
want to keep their fingers in everything, don't want to do some things, do want to do some things, go on a plane trip and come back with a brand new strategy. I mean, they were nightmares to work with. And a founder giving up a company that they've started, which is a version of them. It has their DNA in it. It has their values in it. It has some sort of version of this is my contribution to the world. Too often, the founder gets pulled back and medals and the CEO gets screwed over and uh, it's, it's a bit miserable. So Shannon and I spent two years, a year before and a year after her ascent, managing the process actively. And a key part of that was a conversation around who owns the IP? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Where does the IP sit? And what's my role now? Because if I'm still the face of the company and the voice of the company, that transition isn't that successful. So that's the foundational piece, which is like, I just, I've stepped away from that part of the business and I need to be known for other things other than just the coaching guy. And here you are not only beginning something anew yourself, but also now really exploring (laughs) what it's like to begin. And the thing that I really love about the book is that you really do open up so much of what is going on for you behind the scenes and really get into a lot of the things you've struggled with personally and professionally over the mm-hmm. years. And one of the the principles that leapt out in the book to me is you cite Jim Collins, of course, from Good to Great, uh, the iconic book. And yeah. one of the things that he talks about and and uh, and being able to to start and begin things is to fire bullets and then fire cannonballs. Right. Tell me about that analogy and how you think about it. Uh, it's really helpful. And you know, there's always a moment some people go, oh, I don't like war metaphors, but I'm like, yeah, but hear me out on this one because this is a this is a really useful way of understanding the world. So Jim Collins, who I think perhaps is one of his great gifts is his ability to thingify things, make it a metaphor, make give it language. He says, look, strategy is firing bullets and firing a cannonball. You fire bullets. Because, look, you should just know that whatever you think your plan is, that's not the plan. <laughs> you, need to have it, you need to have it bump up to reality. You need to test it. But it's almost a sure bet that whatever you think you're going to be doing, you're just slightly off. So what bullets are for are they're inexpensive ways of figuring out where the real target is, figuring out what the real range is, figuring out what, what's really there to be aimed at. And then Colin says, look, if you if you fired your bullets and you figured it out, then's the time to commit. That's when you load up your cannonball and you fire your cannonball because you found the target. And then he says, look, this is what happens to too many people. Either they, they load up the cannonball. <laughs> They're like, I'm not firing any bullets. I know this is right. They fire the cannonball. Cannonball misses the real target. And you've lost your, your time, your energy, your resource, your money, whatever it is that you'd invested in that cannonball. Or he says, look, some people spend their whole time firing bullets. And even when they found the target, they're now like, oh, but is that really the target? Oh, should I keep going? Should I really commit? There's a fear of what commitment is. Mm. And understandably, because you know, commitment is when you go all in. So they spend their life firing the bullets. And what Collins is saying is like, you've got to, it takes longer than you think to find the target, fire the bullets. It's more important than you realize that once you fire the cannonball, you fire the cannonball. You know, Dave, I mean, you and I spoke yesterday because you and I were on, um, we were recording a podcast for me, me as the host, you as the guest. Yeah. And I was just curious, you know, I was curious as to how coaching for leaders has grown. And, you know, having brought up this, this 
analogy that Colin shares. It just felt to me that you fired you fired bullets and then you fired a cannonball. You're like, okay, I figured this out. I figured out what a really good version of this podcast is. It took you, as you said, at least four years to really figure out the heart of this wonderful podcast. But when you did, you committed to it fully. You fired the, the cannonball. Yeah. And, and and it's interesting you say that and you perhaps give me more credit than I'm due in that I am the kind of a person who would roll the cannon up to wherever the place <laughs> it was, spend six weeks trying to figure out exactly where the cannon should be positioned, how it should be loaded. I mean, I don't know how much I can continue this analogy, <laughs> but whether um, the cannonballs are polished in the right way, yes, stacked appropriately. Yeah. Yes, and I and as I look back, that's what I was trained to do in a lot of my right. schooling and training. I think a lot of us were and. That's the way I'd liked to approach the world. Didn't work very mm. well the first five or 10 years of my <laughs> career. But when I started the show, I only had two hours a week because it was a hobby. And so right. I couldn't do it. I had to right. fire bullets. And as a result, I figured out along the way, oh, <laughs> there's a different way to do this other than mm. just trying to plan, 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 prepare, 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 and never actually get data. Right. But here's also what's essential in what you're telling us, Dave, is never feels at the moment that you're doing this very rational, I'm just firing bullets for a while and then I'm going to fire a cannonball. You kind of retrospectively see that that's what was done. Because I feel that same about a lot of the stuff that I've done. I'm like, oh, in retrospect, I was quite brilliant <laughs> at the time. Mm. I was just making it all up and just trying to figure out how to what the next step might be. But it's just a useful framework to have, which is like, keep making small steps, keep doing experiments, keep doing the little things that move you forward. And at a certain point, with that little progress and with that sense of momentum, something will open up, which will allow you to take a bolder step or make a bigger leap or fire a cannonball, whatever it might be. What's your tendency on this? Do you tend to be the kind of person left to your own devices that's going to fire a lot of bullets or too many? Or are you more like me of like lining up the cannon? I would say that in the creating of stuff, I fire quite a lot of bullets. Like in the creating of this book, How to Begin, it went through quite a number of iterations. I mean, the first iteration <laughs> I sent out to some friends. One of them was my friend Misha, who's here in Toronto with me. And he emailed me back after a day or two. He went, Michael, I've read the first 40 pages of your book. I'm bored and I have no idea what it's about. <laughs> I was like... Oh, yeah. And you know, partly I'm like 93% grateful and 7% deeply insulted. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but mostly grateful because, but that first draft, I mean, a draft is a bullet where you're like, I don't know, is there something here? Is there anything here? What do people think about it? Am I close to the target? And actually picking through the rubble of that draft, I'm like, oh, you know, there are, there are some things I want to rescue. I want to rescue the phrase, we unlock our greatness by working on the hard things. I want to pick, I want to rescue the phrase, be ambitious for yourself and for the world. But uh, all the other stuff, I realized they're bullets and they didn't hit the right target. But then, you know, come the sixth draft, or maybe it was the seventh draft where I finally went, I think this book is now a, the book I want it to be. Now I'm like, okay, now I'm committed to getting the book out into the world. So I'm firing the cannonball of what does it mean to launch a book? Yeah. And you wouldn't have got there if you hadn't done draft one, draft two, draft three, all of that progress, right. of course. Yeah. There's so much in this book about starting and then making progress. And mm. one of the invitations you make is to discover what your history 
reveals about your future self. Yeah. Tell me what you mean by that. One of the simplest ways to to find a sense of courage and a sense of freedom, perhaps, is your history. And it's to do a thought experiment. It's to look back in your past and go, when have I faced something like this before? Because you probably have. It won't be exactly the same. But you probably have a story that you can tell that might go, you know what? This isn't as daunting as I'm making it out to be because I've seen something like this before. So to make this real, I mean, in the book, I tell the story of trying to launch a new podcast because, you know, Dave, we're all trying to follow in your footsteps. So I'm, you know, <laughs> I have a worthy goal to get 0.03% the number of listeners that you have on this podcast. And, you know, it's a worthy goal. <laughs> and I realized that part of what holds me back is that I have a, a story in my head that I am a high-performing amateur. Like, mm. I, I, I've had some good breaks. I've done some good things. But honestly, nobody was expecting that. And somehow against the odds, I've, I've muddled my way through, kind of blagged my way through. And I do everything with a little bit of duct tape and a little bit of chutzpah, and that's enough. And the goal I set myself it, as I work through the process that I kind of show, I show my own workings as I go through this book. I go, look, I'm trying to get a podcast that's in the top 3% of podcasts, which means 10,000 downloads per episode, which is a lot of downloads for most of us. And I was like, you know what? This, this story of being a high-performing amateur is just contrary to that. It's deeply unhelpful. It's a story that will absolutely scupper my attempt to do this work. But I'm like, but wait, I've got a story. I've got a different story. When I self-published The Coaching Habit, I just made this really strong commitment that for a year, I would treat this as a professional job. I self-publish as a professional, which means an investment in people and standards and process and support that was really alien to me. But you know what? It's so helpful thinking about this podcast to go, oh, even though you've got a dominant voice in your head going, you know, lagging your way through at well-meaning amateur, I can find a different story, a different history that fuels me to be more confident about moving ahead and crossing the threshold here. It's so fascinating, the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, isn't it? Because yeah. when I think of you, amateur would be the last word that would come up for me when I think of the coaching happen and box of crayons and all the work that you've done. I mean, I don't know if people keep statistics on this, but as far as self-published books, you, if you're not the best-selling self-published book of all time, it's somewhere high on the list, right? And yet you have that story of the thing that's going on in your head that's telling <laughs> something contrary. And it's really interesting like how useful it is for us, and I, my sense is, I think you may even said this explicitly in the book, like you don't tend to be the kind of person who likes to kind of reflect. You're more of a, let's get going and let's move. And right. you and I are really alike on that. Like I tend to be that kind of person too. And yet I've seen so many times how helpful taking a little bit of time to reflect is. In fact, you know, I was a Carnegie instructor for many years and the Dale Carnegie course, one of the core elements of it at the very beginning of the course is as instructors, we would ask participants to get up and to tell a story of achievement. What's a time that you did something you're proud of? And they'd get up and, you know, everyone would struggle with it a bit because like, you know, we don't, we don't like to like toot our own horns very much, but they'd get up and they, they people would tell these amazing stories <laughs> of things they'd done in their lives. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how am I in the room with like these people? It's just incredible. Right. And, and then 
you would see how them telling that story would go, oh, yeah, I could get better at like my human relation skills because right. I've done I've went through something in most cases like way harder than that before. And if I just put a little bit of dedication and persistence behind this new thing, I could really move the needle. And it's remarkable the change it made. Yeah. You know, I've done a, a variation of that where you ask people to tell a, a peak moment story. So a moment where they felt at the best version of themselves, you know, they've somehow at the top of whatever that mountain is mm. and it's to tell the story. And then the self is amazing because people light up, you know, their eyes go twinkly. Yeah. And they're kind of remembering a best version of who they are in this world. But the, the, the thing that I then ask somebody to do is I say, you've got a minute as the listener to play back what you see in this person, who they are, their being <laughs> as part of that. And you've got a minute and you have to say at least six things. And the, the sentence stub is you are. <laughs> and, I, and to the person who's listening, because you know this is getting awkward, <laughs> the person who's listening is like, your job is to know that what you're hearing is not the truth, but it's somebody who's seeing something in you. And at the end, all you need to do is say thank you. Mm. All you need to do is just acknowledge the being seenness that is happening at the moment. And it's a very powerful experience because our peak stories are so often, they remind us of some essential parts of who we are and that often get kind of a bit rusty, a bit dusty in the kind of the quotidian busyness of everyday life. Yeah, we're so likely to remember the things that don't quite represent ourselves well internally and right. then being, being reminded of uh, okay, it's not it's not that that isn't necessarily true, but it's an and. What are right. also the things that are true about me that I've done well that I might replicate? So that brings us a bit to experimenting, which of course mm. is you know comes back to that analogy of firing some of those bullets, as hopefully we see a bit more of of the who we are, the full picture. Yeah, um, the invitation is to start a bit, and one of the things that you invite us to do is to avoid making the experiment. Too big and too complicated. Right. What's the trap people fall into with this? Well, this, I mean, just to acknowledge my kind of intellectual forebears, but it's kind of my thinking, building on the work of Bob, Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy on immunity to change. And they're like, once, you, once you're working through your immunity change stuff, it's useful to come up with the test. I'm like, that's true. It is useful. And all of this is within the context, Dave, of once you cross the threshold, it's helpful to travel in small steps because what we hope <laughs> and is never the case is that once you figure out what our worthy goal is, this thing that is thrilling and important and daunting for us, that it'd be so nice if we could just type the address into our you know, phone. <laughs> Apple Maps says, well, it's like 16 minutes away and you take a left and two rights and you grab coffee and then you're, you've arrived. But it's just, it's never like that. It's, this is a daunting task. It's more like you're on a mountaintop and there's a misty valley in front of you and it's jungle around you and you can see a distant peak, which you think is the destination, but you're not entirely sure. And you're trying to figure out your way to kind of move through this somewhat foreign territory. And so we're trying to find the sweet spot between a degree of caution and a degree of adaptability and a degree of complexity and a degree of movement. So you're actually making some movement. So the thought experiment is a good way to kind of like get the courage, take the breath to get moving. The experiment is what actually allows you to take the first step forward. 
So you're like, all right, what's a small thing I can do that could make some progress on this worthy goal and might tell me something about this worthy goal in a way that will keep me safe as well, not have me lose everything. It's really another way of saying, how do you start firing bullets? <laughs> yeah. Mm. How do you start range finding? How do you start testing the distance? How do you find, figure out what the target is? Because my goal is for people to figure out a, a destination that is close, but not too close, test it out, make sure it's the right destination, and then make for it. <laughs> because once you get to that next kind of milestone, that next small step, you get to stop and look around and go, oh, right, now what? Now what do I know now that I didn't know before? about me and about the project and about the path and what would my next phase be around this? And just to make this really tactical, I guess, for people, you know, at MBS.Works, when, when Ainsley and I do this, Ainsley, who works with me at MBS.Works, we work in this six-week cycle. We're like, what can we do in six weeks? What can we test? What can we make progress on in six weeks? And six weeks feels like a really good amount of time because you can get a lot done in six weeks. I mean, really, you can make some really interesting progress. But six weeks feels doable and reachable. And it also feels that if you have a, have a wasted six weeks where you didn't do much or you did a whole lot of stuff on stuff that turned out not to matter, that the cost isn't too great. Hmm. So six weeks feels like a bullet period of time. You said the word risk earlier in this hmm. conversation. And I'm thinking about some of the other war. I don't. I don't know if warning is the right word, but certainly tendencies a lot of us have when we experiment of putting too much risk into the experiment and maybe investing a little too much in its success. And right. you talk in the book, and you also mentioned earlier your transition away from being CEO of Box of Crayons. And I'm curious how you did this as an experiment and thinking about it through that lens. Mm. of this transition from you to Shannon before you really made that a huge transition? Yeah. So the key thing we did was we hired a coach to help us with this. Her name is Jill, Jill Murphy. And we hired her for a year before the ascension of Shannon took place and for a year afterwards. And so what I would have done, even with my best of intentions, is kind of avoided the hard things and you know, mucked around for a year leading up to it. And then come the moment, I'd have gone, all right, Shannon, here you are. It's all yours. <laughs> I'm out of here. Bye. Hmm. And Shannon would have been, what are you talking about? And Shannon, on the other hand, you know, her ideal scenario is, Michael, I need a 12-page document explaining to me exactly what it means to be the CEO of Box of Crowns. So I need you to tell me what, what do I do? And of course, my reaction to this is like, I, look, I don't know what I do currently. And even if I did, it's probably not the CEO behavior I want for you as you rethink about what this organization can be for you. So what we did is Jill just created space for us to explore the edges of this idea and sink into this idea and test hypotheticals about this idea. So very much running some experiments and some thought experiments around what this looks like and where we might go wrong and where we're vulnerable and where we're excited. We spent a year just sitting with it, trying to surface Shannon's anxiety around this because, you know, Shannon 
first time she's ever been a CEO. So she doesn't know what she's doing. Her anxiety because she's <laughs> getting a handover from some dude who also doesn't know what he's doing. You know, my anxiety around or my excitement about what this might open up for me, but also my anxiety to step away from something that I've invested 20 years of my identity and DNA into. And so I think that was a really a, a key moment. And then the other thing that we did, and this is more of, a, I guess, a practice than an experiment, it's more of a structure, is that part of this work was to make a, a decision tree. And here's what I mean by a decision tree. It's not, not what people might be thinking, probably using the wrong language. It comes from the work of Susan Scott, who wrote the book, BS Conversations, I think it's in. Hmm. And she says, look, there are four different types of decisions that get made. And the metaphor is a tree. They're twig, branch, trunk, and root decisions. So twig decisions, I should never know about ever. <laughs> it's the minutiae of day-to-day life at Box of Crayons. Branch decisions are things that I'll probably find out about because, you know, Shannon writes a monthly update and she'll, I'll read about it and, oh, that's interesting. They've done this. They've done that. Trunk decisions are decisions where Shannon will come to talk to me about the decision, but the decision is hers to make. Hmm. And then root decisions are my decisions to make as the, the owner of the company. I mean, I co own it with my wife, but she's, I'm more the active active owner. So we went back and forth around, you know, what, what fits where? And, you know, I think one of the bolder decisions we made is we said, look, I have only two root decisions. That's it. Even though I own this company, I only, can, I only get to decide two things. One is, do we sell it? And the second is, do I fire Shannon? The rest of the decisions are hers to make. Some of them are trunk, some of them are branch, some of them are twig. And it means that, you know, a year into her tenure, she reviewed and changed some of the core values of Box of Crayons. And it was, it was a little confronting because, you know, core values of Box of Crayons are basically Michael's values because I'm the founder. <laughs> I'm like, I know what I stand for. So this is what all you lot stand for as well. But, you know, she and the team went, these don't quite work for us in terms of how we're imagining ourselves as a company. And honestly, there's one part of me that would have been like, let me just share my opinion on this. Let me, sure. let me contribute in some way here. But it was really helpful that we had a structure that said, this is, this is your decision to make. This is a trunk decision, which then gave me guidance around what appropriate behavior was from me. And because you had experimented with that for a year and had those conversations yeah. and worked with a coach, you had figured out what's the framework that is exactly. going to work. And then when inevitably the conflict came, you have a framework to work within, which doesn't eliminate the difficult conversations and the the tough feelings and the emotions that come in. Right. But it gives a it gives a way to process it and move through it much quicker than you would if you didn't have that framework. Exactly. And then I'll say the final thing that was really helpful in this was I sat with the realization that this company was now Shannon's to fail if it if so be it. You know, there's a way that this company may not survive Shannon's tenure as CEO because running a company is hard and there's all sorts of reasons why box of crayons just might not work. I had to come to peace with the idea that that's part of the consequence of giving Shannon the capacity to grow this company and make it amazing is that she may also lose the company. And I'm fine with that. That's part of the, 
that's part of the the glory of the ride. Hmm. You said the word practice a few minutes ago, and you make a distinction in the book when mm. helping us to make progress on something between experiment and developing a practice. What is the difference, and when do you know that it's time to make that transition? Yeah. You know, I wrestled with this as I wrote it, because also looming in the picture is this idea of what a habit is, when you kind of, you get that this is a good thing to keep doing, and you kind of override your conscious mind and trying to push patterns of behavior into your unconscious mind. So when something happens, you react in a way that's the way you want to react. I'm like, okay, so a spectrum here. You start with the history, the thought experiment. You move to the experiment, which is like you start trying some stuff out and running some different experiments. And a practice feels like when you're like, okay, I'm getting there. I think I've figured out the right experiments to run. And I'm going to do that with more consistency and more regularity. But the difference between a practice and a habit, and it's, you know, it's my slightly artificial one, but this is why I think it's helpful, is that a practice means that you stay conscious of the act that you're doing. You are aware of it. It is the meditation where you are actually watching your breath rather than the habit, which is you breathing. And mm -hmm. I feel like if you can get to a place where you're like, I have a regular practice that is about moving my worthy goal forward. And that's a pretty exciting place to be. What's a practice you've developed that's worked for you? I think a practice that's has worked well, and I talk about this as a case study in the book, is about trying to launch this podcast or have a, a successful podcast. And there's some things that I have operationalized around that, so habitized that around how production happens and the like. But one of the things that is a practice for me is the research I do before I talk to somebody. I don't quite go all Dave Stichowiak on, on it and like <laughs> do a five hours research per, per interview, which I know you, know you approximately do. But I do have uh, somebody on my team who pulls together a two-page briefing note. And then I dive into those pages. And then I, I give myself time where I try and think of the questions I want to ask that are more personal and more likely to open up somebody's heart and their vulnerability and their best stories so that I'm not trapped at a more high-level conversation. I'm like, I want to go deeper into who is this person? What matters to them? What shaped them? And I think that's a, become a useful practice, which is in a way that I haven't done in previous podcasts, which is like to be present in the preparation for the conversation. I'm thinking about what you said about breath and meditation and the consciousness of noticing that and that being a practice. And one of my favorite lines in the book is, annoyingly, we seem to learn deepest and fastest when we're in the discomfort of conscious <laughs> incompetence. Yeah. That's so true. It is. I mean, people will know this, but in case they don't, you know, this spectrum about the four phases of learning, unconsciously incompetent, so you don't know that you suck. That's my favorite part. <laughs> <laughs> That's the place we all, we all aspire to. Um, yes. Consciously incompetent is when you do know you suck and you're feeling the pain of trying to get better and not be mediocre. Something that I think that the people who listen to a podcast like this particularly wrestle with because the people here are ambitious and competent and have mastery in a bunch of things. And often as you establish your life as an adult, you build a life around you where you are the next phase, which is consciously competent, 
or even unconsciously competent, which is, you know, closer to mastery. And ironically, it's like, can you find a way to put yourself back into unconscious incompetence as a place for cracking you open and finding the, the, the next part of growth? It's so easy for us all to convince ourselves that if we listen to enough podcasts, read enough books, <laughs> watch enough TED Talks, which are all are really important, right? The way and you and I have yeah. been involved in a lot of that over the years, that we've done our work. And of course, that's really just the start. And the, the thing right. that I love about the book is it's such a great roadmap for, okay, given that you've done that, which everyone listening to the show has already done, now what's next? And yeah. so my invitation for everyone is to track down the book. And you have a website set up for uh, folks who'd like to grab the book, but also discover a bunch more, right? Yeah, that's right. So how to begin is the nice, clean and clear website. So there's a, there are a bunch of resources on offer throughout the book. And how to begin gives you access to all of that. I mean, because a book at its best is, an, is a great catalyst. But often, if you're looking to change something, you need more than a book. And so how to begin gives you a doorway to walk through where you can find the resources you want to support you in the work that you're doing. All right. We'll have that linked up on the show notes, howtobegin.com. That's easy to remember. Before I let you go, Michael, you know, I often ask people, what if they change their minds on? Because, mm. you know, we're all learning, we're all growing. The last time you were on the show was right before COVID. So lots happened in the world in the last <laughs> two years. When you reflect on these last few years, your own transitions, what's one thing you've changed your mind on in the last couple of years? Well, let me, let me, if I can, I'm going to tweak the question just slightly because you, earlier on you said you and I are both kind of forward looking. Mm -hmm. And actually, what I've changed my mind about, or at least I'm changing my mind about, it's happening even as we speak, is how I label myself. And what I'm sitting with is shifting how I call what I am, what I do, to being a writer. And I think next year I'm going to try and write three books. <laughs> just wow. ludicrous as I say it out loud. But I've got three really clear ideas of books. And I'm asking myself, what would need to be true for me to be able to write three books in a year? And one of the things that would need to be true is that I call myself a writer. And I've never really done that before, even though I've written books. I've done it in the context of, I don't know, being a teacher or being a business person or something else. But now I'm like, what, what is it to really own that, to be a writer? So that's what I'm changing my mind about. My friend, I know we have many more conversations ahead. I'm grateful for all our past ones and this one. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you, Dave. If this conversation was useful to you, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is a past episode with Michael that I pass along just about weekly to someone in our listening audience. That's episode 284, The Way to Stop Rescuing People from Their Problems. So many of us as leaders care a lot. We want to jump in and help people, and yet sometimes we do it a bit too much. Things end up back on our desk that we've already delegated, and we end up doing the work when actually it would be better for us and the other person if they were doing the work as intended. How to avoid that trap a bit? Michael and I talk about that in detail in episode 284. I'd also recommend episode 376, How to Become the Person You Want to Be, with James Clear, his blockbuster bestseller book, Atomic Habits, we talk about in that conversation. And one of the key points he makes in the book and in that conversation is the distinction between setting a goal and taking on a new identity. When starting something new, it's helpful to think about it 
from a standpoint of identity. We talk about that a lot in our conversations within the Academy, episode 376, a useful place to begin with that message from James Clear. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 555, How to Nail a Job Transition. My guest was Sukinder Singh Cassidy. We talk about how effectively to look at job transitions from a standpoint of tactics, not only for you, but the people around you, how you communicate, what you say, what you don't. And one of the points that she made in that conversation is highlighting the myth of a single choice. Oftentimes, we think about a major career transition or so many other things in life as I've reached this point and it's going to be this or that, and it's going to ultimately be the decision point that's going to affect everything going forward. There are occasions, of course, where that can be true. More often than not, as she talks about in that conversation, it's certainly been my experience, is it's what we do over time. It's the culmination of many decisions, our long-term trajectories, and how we approach others, our relationships. Episode 555 for more on that. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you haven't yet set up your free membership, I'm inviting you to do so because as you heard in my introduction, Michael is also the best-selling author of The Coaching Habit, a book that many of you have used over the years to become more coach-like. We've had over 30 interviews over the years, not only with Michael, but with many others on the topic of coaching skills. You can find all of those by setting up your free membership and searching the library by topic. Coaching skills is one of several dozen topics that you'll find within the library of the membership. And that way you can search by what's most relevant to you right now. That and many other benefits of free membership, including my weekly leadership guide, all of the free audio courses, my own personal library, all included in free membership. You can set it up today by going over to coachingforleaders.com and beginning there. Next week, Alyssa Cohn is on the show. We're going to be talking about a important and difficult topic. What do you do when you need to fire someone? Join me for that conversation with her next Monday and have a great week.